Epistle reading is found in the letter to the Hebrews, um, chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. It's on page 1005 in the Pew Bibles. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second, second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we, can now, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second section only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more would the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive their promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. The New Testament reading, gospel reading, is found in Luke chapter 24. Nope. Chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It's on page 884. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Here, this assurance from God's word. Therefore, brothers, 
since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Come bringing your tithes and our offerings, not because you need them. Father, you own the universe. It's yours. Oh, Father, but we need, we're the ones that need to come and give. We come to this point in our worship every Lord's Day. And Father, it's a humbling place. We do not want to be charity cases. We want to say, look what I have done. Oh, Father, but we all are charity cases. Every breath we took this week was only by your hand and your will. Everything from our shoestrings, a button on our shirts, to our houses, our homes, our children, our parents, they're all gifts from you. You've given. We don't have a thing that you have not given us. Oh, Father, we want to lay claim to those things and say, look what I did. But, oh, no, we come now confessing that we are a dependent people. And we come gladly, joyfully, saying, this is what the Lord has done. Oh, Father, thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. I'm going to do something that I actually don't prefer to do, but I believe this text before us calls us to do this. And this morning, as we look at Luke 23, I'm going to use this passage as a launching point to look at the whole of God's Word. I usually prefer to look at the passage before us and ask the question, what does it say? What does the author want us to know? What does the Holy Spirit want us to see here in this passage? And we will do this. But as you will hear me say over and over and over again, this passage, for us to understand this passage, we must understand how it is rooted in the Old Testament. I do not believe that we can fully understand this passage unless we know where it came from, what it tells us about God's redeeming story in history. For all the Old Testament has prepared us for Jesus. It has prepared us for his life and his death and his resurrection. And unless we understand what this passage speaks to of the Old Testament, we cannot fully understand what Luke wants us to understand. And this makes sense. 
Because if we look at the next chapter in Luke, in Luke 24, Jesus does something two different times. If you look in your few Bibles, chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus says this, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This was the perspective of Jesus. To understand who I am and what I'm doing, you must understand all the scripture. He again says the same thing in verses 44 to 49. Everything that was written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. For us to rightly understand Luke 23, we must have a firm understanding of the Old Testament. I don't want us to read over this passage so quickly that we miss it. If you remember, in 2004, Mel Gibson came out with a movie, The Passion of Christ. And it was a movie centering on the death and crucifixion of Jesus upon the cross. And when it came out, there's this story of this group that went around interviewing people as they came out of the movie and what their thoughts and their reactions were. And most of their reactions were, you know, that was really graphic. Or they came out with this real conviction of what Jesus has actually done. But it was interesting. There was one person that they interviewed, and as he came out, he really looked confused. And they asked him, what did you think of the movie? And he responded with a question, why did Jesus die? You see, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, assumes you understand why Jesus died. It never tells you. Why did he die? And if we don't understand Jesus in light of the Old Testament, we cannot properly answer that question. In light of the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled every promise, every prophecy, every picture, type, and shadow. In the Old Testament, Jesus redeemed his people out of Israel. In the same way, Jesus' death accomplished the redemption of God's people from their slavery to sin, which has caused separation from us in our covenant God. And the good news about Jesus is that he has restored us. He has restored our fellowship with the living and eternal covenant God. This is why Jesus died. Because our sin severed us from God. Without Jesus, we do not have fellowship with God. And this is what the Old Testament shows us over and over and over again to his people, is that God has said he will redeem you, and he's not giving up on you. 
This passage is about God's rescue mission of us through the person and the work of Jesus Christ and how he has brought us back to life. Fellowship with God because he loves us. Because he loves you. If you don't hear anything I say this morning, this passage speaks how our sin has separated us through Christ. Our sin has separated us from God and through Christ. Not even our sin, our shame, our addictions, our brokenness can separate us from the love of Christ. Before we begin to look at this passage, let us go to our Father in prayer. Father, we thank you for bringing us here this morning by the power of your word. Lord, we pray for Jim Bennington this morning as he adjusts to his new living arrangements. Lord, may as a church, may we come around him and support him and love him. Lord, we thank you for the progress that Mary Elizabeth is making. Continue to heal her. Father, we pray for Robert Gardner's father as he begins treatment. Lord, we ask you to heal him. Lord, we pray for all of those that are beginning school this week or have begun or will begin, whether homeschooled or at Fayette Academy, Wherever they go to school, we pray that you will bless them. We pray that you will protect our children. Lord, may they be light in the darkness. May they learn how to love as you have loved them. May they be gracious with their words to one another. May they represent the joy that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray for your hand of protection over our country. Lord, we just click on the news and we see the shootings in El Paso and Dayton. Lord, bless us. Protect us from this hatred that's in the world. All truth comes from you. May we point people to that truth every single day. Lord, we pray for your mission across the globe. We pray for the Shibe family as we send them to Northern Ireland. Lord, help them in the preparation as they go over there. Use Mark and Liz as a mouthpiece, as shepherds to the shepherds, as good counselors, reminding people of the need that they need in Jesus. We pray for these things in the name of Christ. Amen. September 11th, 2001. If you were alive in conscience, you remember where you were. You remember where you were when you heard the news. You probably remember what you did for the rest of the day. I was a sophomore in high school. I heard of the news as I came out of my first period class and was walking to my second period class. 
And then I went to my next classroom and we turned on the TV and we watched. This is where I saw the second plane go into the second tower. This is where my teacher began to cry. This is where students tried to make jokes because they were trying to make sense of the madness. But they too watched in unbelief. Later I would watch, we would watch the two towers crash into the cities of New York City. And it was shocking. It was horrifying. It was inconceivable what was taking place right before our eyes. As we read verse 49, I imagine this is a similar feeling that the disciples are experiencing. As they stood from a distance, Jesus is dead, hanging on the cross. This is the person that they left their jobs and their homes for. And we might not think that's a big deal because we change jobs often. We might change jobs within the same job or within the same community. We might actually change cities for our job. But in this culture, your job was to do what your parents did. Your whole family was dependent upon you growing up and doing the family business. To leave your job meant you let your family culture. These people left their jobs and their families to follow a rabbi named Jesus from Nazareth. And now he has just died. Publicly persecuted, executed, crucified, shamed, and cursed because he hung upon a tree. Sometimes I wonder if we ponder the gravity of this event enough. Do we usually save this, these thoughts for Good Friday as we await for Easter Sunday? Do we speak of Jesus' death just so that we can speak of his resurrection? Because in these verses, it does not speak of the resurrection. We are forced to pause in bewilderment. What is going to happen next? There's confusion. Jesus is dead, and there his body hangs. A few weeks ago, I was in a bike race in Sparta, Tennessee. It was a meager 40 miles long. And I have a video of the race. And towards the end of the race, I was in a group of nine riders. And we are all working together and against each other the last 20 miles and at the end, you see our speeds begin to increase. We start jostling for different positions. And in my video, you see I begin to move to the back of the group. You see, I like doing this in a bike race. I like to move to the back of the group because then I want to come around the whole group. And we make the final turn. We go up the last little here hill, and there you see it, the finish line. And as you watch this video, I make my move. 500 meters away, there's the finish line. I pass everybody. My speed increases, 23, 25, 30, 35 miles an hour. 300 meters to the finish. I'm in the front. 200 meters to the finish. I'm in the front. 100 meters, still in the front. 
50 meters, I'm still in the front. And then someone passes me and I get second. That week I came home and I watched the video over and over and over again. And finally Jessica looked at me and she said, do you think that if you watch it over again that somehow the outcome will be different? Are you hoping that you actually win if you keep watching it? I'd imagine that the disciples of Jesus were standing there in bewilderment, wishing that they could change the events of what just happened. Standing there, witnessing Jesus dying, and praying that something else would happen. It's interesting, this passage, the only commentary of the scene we get is from a Roman centurion, a Gentile, whose words should ring true in every hearer's ears. Certainly, this man was innocent. The NIV translates it, surely this was a righteous man. Insult to injury. Over the past few weeks, John has looked at the trial of Jesus as he stood before the council of the Sanhedrin, as he stood before Pilate, as he represented himself before Herod. And there was one reoccurring theme through all those scenes. Jesus was innocent. But there they stood in bewilderment not knowing what to do. But the gospel of writer of Luke gives us a ray of hope. And it's not overtly obvious. And that's why we need to know the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. And what we see is that the Old Testament has prepared us for this scene. If you turn your Bibles to page of your pew Bibles to page 613, we're going to go to Isaiah 52. This is a passage that John has continually come back to over and over and over again. And any preacher of the gospel will come back over and over and over again because in this passage, Isaiah prepares us for the death of Jesus. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely, and he shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is just one instance where the Old Testament prepares us for Luke 23. Isaiah prepares us for the flogging of Jesus. Listen to this. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah prepared us for Jesus' death. He will be pierced for our transgression. He will be crushed by the will of God. Yet, embedded in Isaiah's description, Jesus' forthcoming persecution and death he also explains why Jesus died. Jesus died because he bore God's judgment. Judgment which was reserved for us. Because of our sin. Because of our transgression. Because of our iniquity, Jesus died. So God's judgment would not be poured out upon us. Jesus died to receive the punishment we deserve. God reserved our damnation and placed it upon the Christ, our Messiah. He was cut off that we might be brought in. He was cut off so that we would not receive the covenant curse for being covenant breakers. He received the covenant curse so that we might receive the covenant blessing. Jesus was given as a guilt offering so that our days might be prolonged. Jesus' death was undeserved. It was not caused by anything he had done. It was not caused because he had broken the law. It was not caused for his sin, but for our sin. You see, if Jesus had sinned, then the damnation that he received would be what he deserved. 
But since Jesus did not sin, he received the damnation for the iniquities of our sin. This is why Jesus died as an innocent man. He didn't receive what he deserved. He received what we deserved. He was innocent. Because if we were left to ourselves, we could never become innocent. This is what it means when we say we have been justified by God. We have been acquitted. But God's justice was satisfied, but not upon us, but upon Christ. This is what we read in our epistle reading in Hebrews 9. Jesus gave himself for you so that you would not be cursed, but that you might be seen as sons and daughters of Christ. Jesus has redeemed you by his own blood. This is the gospel. We deserve God's covenant curse, but Jesus took it, and he gave us life in return at the expense of his own life. And we become covenant heirs of the promises of God. This semester... I'm I'm getting ready to lose a whole bunch of you if I haven't already. This semester, we're going to study the book of Exodus and youth. You should be excited. I'm excited. So let me ask you, when when you hear the book of Exodus, what do you think? Maybe it's Egypt or the plagues, Moses and Aaron, the parting of the Red Sea. Maybe you even get as far as chapter 20. In the Ten Commandments. But do you know, if you agree with all those things, if those were the things that came first to your mind, chapter 20, you've only made it halfway through Exodus. Most of the time when we think about the book of Exodus, those are the things we think of, but that is only half the story of Exodus. Usually we read about, we find God's people lost and oppressed. God finds Moses and gives us the plan of how he's going to redeem his people. We read through the Red Sea, we read to the Ten Commandments, and then we just stop. Like the rest of the book's not there. But what's so great about Exodus is that, yes, we find the people of God lost and oppressed. We see see God save them through Moses, through the Red Sea. But if you're good readers of Scripture throughout the first 20 chapters, you're told over and over again why God actually does this. He redeems God's people so that they may worship him. So that they can come back into communion because their sin and slavery has separated them so that they cannot have communion with their God. It is a rescue mission of how God saves his people to worship the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, in the second half of Exodus, we see how the people are supposed to observe the Sabbath, how they are to have festivals celebrating God's redemption, how are they supposed to seek restitution among one another, how they're supposed to have social justice, how they're supposed to construct the sanctuary, 
what they're supposed to wear inside the sanctuary, what's supposed to go inside the sanctuary. You see, we see these details and our eyes kind of glaze back and roll back in our head. But this is what God's people were supposed to do so that they can come into the presence of God. And in these chapters, this is where we can make the connection from Exodus to Luke 23. Because this is the first time we hear of this curtain that Jesus tore in Exodus 26. You see, Luke is teaching us something about God. He is connecting for us something that Jesus taught his disciples that the Old Testament had been preparing us for all the way back in Exodus. This curtain that we hear of in verse 45 was a veil. And it separated the most holy place from the holy place. And only once a year, the high priest could go in and make sacrifices for himself. And as the author of Hebrews says, and the unintentional sins of the people. This curtain was torn by the death of Jesus. This curtain, which God commanded Moses to put in the sanctuary, was a divider. It was a keep out sign because God was holy. But because of the sin of the people, they could not go in. If you haven't read this book, the Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. If you don't like reading, it's very colorful. It's got really big pictures and really big words. But in this book, Carl Lafferton tells us of the story of Jesus. And he tells us that God created the world by the power of his word. That he created man and woman in his image. They're supposed to be image bearers to care for creation. Yet men and women sinned, and what happened? God sent them out of the garden. And he put up a sign that said, keep out. We read this in Genesis 3, 24. Don't turn there, just listen. It says, God drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed cherubim with a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The cherubim was a keep out sign. Because of man's sin, we are separated from fellowship with God. And it's interesting, if you know your Old Testament, in Exodus 26, 31, this is what we read about the curtain. And you shall make a veil of of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. You shall put it before the mercy seat of the testimony of the most holy place. And it shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. This veil separated the holy place from the most holy place. where a a priest could go and make sacrifices and where only a high priest could go into and enjoy the full presence of God. 
God uses this image in the garden and in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And this is what Luke speaks of in this passage. Because the death of Jesus, this curtain is torn. And because our sin that severed our relationship from God, the keep out sign is no longer there. And Jesus is yelling at his people, come in. The curtain is no longer there. On the cross, Jesus accomplished the grand redemptive event in history. On the cross, Jesus became our high priest and went in and tore the curtain down so that we might go in. Why did Jesus die? To be pierced for our transgressions. Rip. Why did Jesus die? To be crushed for our iniquities. Rip. Why did Jesus die? To be chastised for us. Rip. So we might go into the presence of God. So that we will not see the keep out sign and be veiled from the holy of holies. Because that is where Jesus is. Jesus is our high priest. There is no longer a keep out sign for us to be in fellowship with God the Father Almighty. On the cross, our King died, opening up the gates of heaven. You know, it's interesting when we compare Jesus to the high priest. If you know your tabernacle layout of the furniture, which I'm sure all of you do, there's no place for a priest to sit. Because as the author of Hebrews tells us in uh, chapter 10, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But then in verse 12, we read this. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It was finished. There was no more work that needed to be done. The curtain is gone. It's also interesting to think that this most holy place that represented the presence of God, Jesus didn't go in that place in the tent or the tabernacle or the temple. Jesus went into heaven and is seated seated at the right hand of the Father Almighty. It's no longer a type or a shadow of the things to come. Jesus was the fulfillment of our high priest. The keep out sign is gone. Do you want to see the power of God in this passage? We have to turn and look now at the words of Jesus. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, this whole idea of us needing to understand the Old Testament. Jesus is quoting Psalm 31, which is a psalm of lament. It's a song sung by God's people that he would be their refuge, that he would protect them, 
that he would vindicate them for being unjustly persecuted. You see, Jesus' words show us what true faith really looks like. Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, I lay down my life and I will take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus did not seek his own vindication. In those three trial scenes, he could have stood up and said, this is who I am. I am the king. But he had faith in the promises of God to vindicate him and raise him from the dead. Jesus is showing us what true faith in God's promises look like as he died upon the cross. And Jesus is showing us that he has accomplished what we could not, the satisfaction for our sin. And he brought us in to perfect communion with God through faith. Upon the cross, our sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed, and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Please stand and sing.